always knew that I wanted to do this one last because of the man and just uh, because of the actual carol itself. And it's also the most difficult to sing. We tried it last night and we weren't able to do it. And we're hoping that the second chance is better. And it's on the back cover of your pamphlet here. Um, Christmas Bells, written by Henry Longfellow. And we're going to try to sing this all the way through. Uh, the first verse says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I thought how as the day had come, the belfries of old Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. The last stanza says, Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. We'll sing two carols in our opening, so if you don't know this one, don't despair. I think we'll probably sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing after this, and that's usually one that's known by all. So, um, we'll, we'll give this carol here that we're going to speak about tonight and attempt here as we try to sing it together on the back of your booklets here. I heard the bells on Christmas Day Oh. 
um, and for everyone else who knew that tune here tonight. Um, and then maybe just for a second carol this evening, uh, this being our last night, we'll sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, written by Charles Wesley. Uh, this was one that we looked into earlier this week. And so we will sing all three verses here of this well-known Christmas carol. Uh, the last verse says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. We'll sing this entire Christmas carol as well together before we speak from God's word and talk about uh, the carol that we just sung previously. So we'll sing Hark the Herald Angels. Sing together. Oh, 
warm welcome this time of year. Uh, my name is David Sudama, and uh, we're speaking tonight, uh, as we have throughout this week, uh, from the Bible, our only authority uh, in these meetings, and um, hopefully we're able to uh, impart to you some truth from Scripture tonight, and also some truth from some of these really loved Christmas carols that we find ourselves singing throughout this month. And sometimes, uh, unbeknownst to us, we don't know the backstory, we don't know the history behind them, the author, where he got his inspiration from, and all these things, uh, as uh, we delved into them and looked at them, I think have been uh, a great prompt for us to actually understand sometimes the, the message and the meaning behind some of these great lyrics. So before we open up from the Bible and speak tonight, we'll ask for God's blessing on our meeting, and we'll pray together. Our Father, we give thanks uh, for once again making it possible in this great country for us to all be able to come together here tonight uh, and to be able to freely discuss things uh, that are greater than really anything else that we could discuss, even this time of year. There are so many important things on our mind, so many uh, incredible things that could be talked about concerning the world that we live in and the country that we are part of. Uh, but we're thankful tonight that still the most important thing that could ever come from human lips is things concerning your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that tonight uh, you would help us to present him as the Savior, and that you would also give help to our audience uh, to, to listen to uh, what the Scriptures have to say concerning him and what we uh, would even appreciate from this great Christmas carol tonight that we're going to look into. We ask all this, and we ask, Lord, that in doing so, we would honor his name, the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, as has been advertised, we're going to talk about this carol here, written by Henry Longfellow. And uh, when, when I was asked to take up some of these Christmas carols, um, I, there are ones that I like to sing, and I go Christmas caroling every year. I'm part of the 16% of Americans who stole Christmas carol. I don't know if you are or not, but we're looking to make it to 20%. So if we can get like four more people here, we may hit that number. But uh, And every year we sing them, and really when you do that, when you go to someone's house, whether it was my grandmother's house or whether it was my, my unsuspecting next-door neighbor, um, few people close the door on you, but it does happen. Um, but everyone's usually really, uh, you would say, the, the, the spirit of the season you can see in other people's eyes, the nostalgia of growing up singing these, these songs and the, uh, the different uh, traditions that surround all of us throughout the Christmas season, uh, I think are, are evoked when we hear these carols sung. And so sometimes uh, they're sentimental, but we fail to see that they're also scriptural, a lot of them. They, they tell us about something that is beginning to be ignored in the season that we live in. One famous uh, theologian has said, it's very difficult to discuss a man's birthday, but yet in any public scene, you can't talk about him. And you can't talk about where he came from and what he did, but you can talk about the, the jolly you know, man who comes down the chimney. You can talk about all the false things, but the true things, don't mention them. So it's uh, always refreshing to talk about the true things this time of year. Let's read a couple of verses from the Bible before we talk about Longfellow's poem. And we've read these verses a number of times this week, but um, there's no shame in repetition. We'll read them again because these are the words that inspired Longfellow when he wrote this poem. And they're found in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. 
Luke chapter 2 and verse 10 says this. These are the words of the angels. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings, that's good news, of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace. We're going to talk about peace tonight. I think that was what Longfellow struggled with, and maybe we do too. But just We're going to talk about that tonight. Peace, peace on earth, and goodwill towards men. And just one other verse, if you would uh, do so uh, with me. And that verse is found in Colossians. You've got to keep going through your New Testament. If you're not familiar with where it is, it should be in an index in the beginning of your Bible. But you go through the New Testament, you get to Galatians, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read a verse here in Colossians 1 and verse 20. Colossians 1 and verse 20. And it says here, speaking about God. We'll just read the verse prior to it for connection. It says, For it pleased the Father that in him, that's in the Lord Jesus Christ, should all fullness, all the fullness of God should dwell in Jesus Christ, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. We'll just read that one more time. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Those are right, just verses that I'd, I'd like to, to read from the, the Bible tonight before we discuss um, this carol here for Christmas. Um, I like the carol tonight. I heard the bells um, just because of its poignancy and because of how direct Mr. Longfellow. And Mr. Longfellow is kind of dear to my heart too because. If anybody was a blue-blood American, it had to be Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I mean, when we go through the other Christmas carols, nothing against the Austrians or the French or the English or the Germans who, who were great caroler inventors, that's great. But at the end of the day, as an American, I'm waiting for the American who's going to come up with a carol. And so I waited to the last night for Mr. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who's whose mother was a descendant from the Mayflower generation of, who come over here, and, and his, his grandfather fought in the Revolution. And here's a man who, who lived in George Washington's headquarter house. Like, if ever there was a man who was a blue blood, it was him. And, and there he lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and, and he's one of the great poets of his day. And I thought, I'd like to end with this man, because he also speaks to my heart and to maybe yours, and he's a man who is no stranger to sorrow. We're going to learn about that. And it seems that he asked a question that maybe you're asking too. Those words, peace on earth, were, were, were they just something for Hallmark to make a dime on? When are they going to come true? And really, are they ever going to be true? Because I think that's what he struggled with, and a lot of us do too. Henry Wordsworth, Wadsworth, was born in 1807. He was born in Maine, but at that time, Maine wasn't even really a state. It was part of Massachusetts. 
Maybe it could still be part of Massachusetts, because I don't know that it could exist on its own. But Maine, they're part of Massachusetts. And uh, he's born up there. Um, and his mother and his father are very concerned about his education, as long as with his other brothers. And uh, he goes to private schools, and he's brought up in language studies. And he's brought up in just uh, with a family that really reveled in and, and what it meant to be from not only New England, but, but also to be, to be uh, drawn into to the, to even the, the, the writers and the, the poets of their day. And so Henry's brought up in this atmosphere, and, and he himself, I think at the age of 13, he composes his first poem, and he sends it into the newspaper, and it's a, it's a patriotic four stanza poem about a battle that took place in the Revolution. You think... This guy is just set on course. He is charged up. He's, he's ready to go. And uh, I think his parents are impressed with his capabilities. And he grows and he matures. And uh, you can still read some of his poems. And he writes, Paul Revere's Rye. If, if you haven't felt the inspiration from the rye that led a man to declare the enemy's entrance all the way down to Lexington, you say, you read his poem and it, man, it brings it like you're there. Like you're watching the lanterns being hung in the church steeple and you're, you're on the back of the horse with Revere. And you could read another one of his poems, Evangeline, and it, 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 the sentiment of someone who's lost their love. And he really touches the chords as few other poets do in American history, of these sentiments of patriotism and romanticism, and, and even hearkening back to the days of the, the frontier aspect of the US. And Henry does that, and he does it far none. He's considered to be one of the, the four great uh, fireside uh, poets of New England. And so when we look at his life, his life is marked with, with these great attributes about a poet who could write and who could write for the common man so that he would understand some of the history of even the country. Henry was no stranger to sorrow. Uh, even before he was married, he saw the death of one of his brothers. Um, he, 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 he took a time where he went through Europe after high school, and he was informed there about the death of another one of his siblings. His first wife passed away after only a few years of marriage. Um, he got married again, and uh, he lost uh, a, another daughter uh, after that, and even his second wife uh, died. Uh, there was a fire in the house, and Henry went down, and his wife, who was engulfed in flames, he did everything he could to put himself on, on his wife and tried to put out those flames, actually to the point where the burns prevented him from even attending her funeral. And actually, if you ever look at a picture of Longfellow, he usually has a beard because he had to cover up the marks that the burns had left on his face. And so he's a man uh, that by the time we kind of meet him when he's writing this carol that we've read, um, he's no stranger to sorrow. He's lost children, he's lost siblings, he's lost two wives, and uh, he even says himself that he fears in his life uh, having to be admitted to an asylum just because of losing his mind over sorrow. And so that's a tough, uh, you would say, lot for anybody in life. And, and here, this poet, this man who was given to and expressing himself uh, for the sake of others, uh, he finds himself, really his greatest works are, 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 are few and rare after the loss of his wife. 
And so tonight we start with that, and we start with the Christmas Eve in 1865, uh, 1864 here, and uh, that Christmas Eve is when he composes this, and then we back up a little bit, and we, we realize that the, what caused the man to pen the words that, that you have read and that we have sung here uh, was his oldest son, Charles Appleton Longfellow, who at the age of 18, uh, just maybe about eight or nine months before this Christmas Eve uh, that marked the time in which Longfellow wrote these words, he had snuck out of their house in Cambridge, Massachusetts and taken the 400-mile ride all the way down to join Lincoln's army to fight for the Union in the Civil War. And here was this 18-year-old boy, and Longfellow had written quick letters to the, the governor of Massachusetts, to the senator whom he knew in Massachusetts, to the, to the army general uh, physician whom he knew, saying, make my son an officer. I could never stand to lose him. Make him an officer. And yet he impressed the other soldiers around him to such an extent that there was no way they were going to make him an officer with all his skill and ability. And if it was not for catching typhoid fever in the latter part of June of 1864, he would have fought in the Gettysburg Battle from July 1st to the 3rd. And he was spared that because of his sickness. And yet he comes back home, he recovers from that illness, and he goes right back, right back to battle, joining once again the first militia uh, from Massachusetts there that he fought with. And it was, it was different battles that he was in where he showed such prowess and such skill that, that he was just ushered into these situations where he was showing such skill. And it was in November 27 of 1864 that in the Battle of Mine Run that Charles took a bullet that went through his left shoulder and came out underneath his right shoulder blade and missed his spine Physician said by half an inch would have left him paralyzed for the rest of his life. And a telegram reached Charles on December 1st, four days after it happened, that your son has been greatly injured, your eldest son, in this battle. And, and Longfellow, Henry Longfellow, and his son, Ernest, they raced down to get his son. They stayed with him. The physicians were able to mend the wounds, and they said it's going to be six months before he recovers. And Henry brought his son back home to Cambridge, and he was a single father of seven children, the oldest of who almost was paralyzed within half an inch of his life. And there he was, a father of seven, taking care of them, having lost two wives, multiple siblings, multiple children. And on December 25, 1864, there he is in his house in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he hears the bells playing the old Christmas carols, playing a variety of them. And if you've heard one Christmas carol, some people say you've heard them all. They promise something that the Bible promises, and yet most of us look and we say, is it really true? Is there any any hope in this message because Henry Longfellow wondered the same thing that Christmas Day and he's penned the words so that his emotions were raw and yet they're revealed to you and I and he says hate is strong it mocks it mocks makes a mockery of not only the songs that we sing but it makes a mockery of what the scriptures say peace on earth goodwill to men 
And in this struggle that we read here, that Longfellow had, I too have asked a question, and maybe you have. This idea of peace on earth, when's it going to happen? What's going to cause it? What's going to bring this in? Every Christmas, maybe every December 1st, or maybe every Black Friday, as soon as Thanksgiving's wrapped up, we start to hear the hymns, we start to hear the songs, we start to hear people recite them, we go to children's plays, and over and over again we become inundated with these words that we've read from Luke 2, peace on earth, give peace a chance, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. It's written on a half a dozen Christmas cards. I've written it on my own this year, that people would know true peace. And yet you ask, and I ask, are the words myth, or do they have any meaning? I'd like to address that tonight. I'd like to address it from the Bible. And maybe tonight there's something that we would learn, and maybe, I don't know what Henry died thinking, but he seems to have some come to some conclusions in his own writing here. When we talk about this peace that, that is brought up here, peace on earth, I'd like to discuss it tonight, and I'd like to talk about it um, in such a way, and hopefully I'm clear, and hopefully you understand uh, what the scriptures say and what I would like to get across to you. They're not my own thoughts, uh, but they're something I think is important for us all to address tonight. Peace on earth. You know, we live in a day where uh, you know, if, if someone was going to hang a blue and yellow flag in the front of their house, we know what that means, right? It means we want to see peace. We want to see peace between two countries, the Ukraine and the Russian Federation. We want to see peace between Zelensky and Putin. Maybe some people don't. Maybe some people just want to see one man crush another. But most of us hang the flag, and most of us have donated and most of us have taken on the cause. Maybe some of us have mentioned it in our prayers because ultimately we want to see peace. When we think of the Middle East, and if any of us have thought about it over the past 60, 70 years, it's with that intention that somehow uh, two states would, 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 would get along with each other, that there would be some type of peace. When we hear about genocide, when we hear about friction, we hear about these things, and even in our own country now, we are by no means strangers to the fact of what it would mean to live in peace even with neighboring states and neighbors in general. And so, with that in mind, do you think, I ask you tonight, peace on earth, do you think when these angels came down, I think angels are, are fairly knowledgeable, when these angels came down and they were given this message from the God of eternity, and they said that day, glory to God in the highest, Peace on earth. Do you think that they stepped back for a second and said, maybe that's not what we should have said. Maybe, maybe you know, this is the Roman Empire. This is a Pax Romana, Roman peace. This is something where, you know, the, this is brutality. We, we maybe have gotten this wrong. Is this, is this really what we want to pronounce? Is this something that we can hold to? Is this something that we can... Is, is, is the idea that, that really what the Bible is endorsing and what we expect God to do is to provide peace from one nation to another. Would it surprise you that if you were to read through your Bible and you were to flip to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, the Lord Jesus, he once said, do you think that I came to make peace on earth? And actually the Lord Jesus, one of the few times he answers his own question, he says, I certainly did not. You see, he didn't. He didn't come to provide peace from one nation to another. 
No, he said, the Lord Jesus even said, he goes, until, until the end of time, one nation will rise up against another. There'll be, there'll be wars between countries. There'll be rumors of wars between countries. There'll be conflict from the days of creation all the way until the final consummation of this world. It'll be marked by war. It'll be marked by aggravation and hatred from countries, civilizations, cultures, and people one towards another. And I can tell you with the authority of the Bible that when the angels said that day, peace on earth, by no means were they talking about peace between nations. Because if they were, man, close your Bibles, it's failed. It's not true. It's not true. If, if, when, if Longfellow were only to know the amount of wars that we would fight in the 20th century would put to shame the war that we fought against our own brethren here in the U.S., he would, he would have to have been saddened to know that the bells still ring on Christmas Day and we're still fighting against each other. It's not true. So what was he talking about? What's the Bible talking about? What were these angels talking about? Peace on earth. What is at the heart of every conflict? What is at the heart of every war? Every time one man dissents against another, every time one man raises his fist against another, what is at the heart of that? Is it just, is just, is just that we think differently? Is it just that somehow we, we can't get our aspirations and our ideas to match up? No, at the heart of every one of these things is just this. The heart of the problem is the heart of man. Within our hearts exists one thing the Lord Jesus came to make peace about, and that was that we were enemies of God. The Bible says that. Romans 5, one of the greatest chapters of the New Testament, says that we were enemies of God. Few people maybe want to admit that. Because the enemy is a strong word. And, and, and the scriptures tell us that we were at enmity with him, even in our minds, not just with our hands, but, but in our minds. That this, this, this was not a matter of nations looking for peace, but, but Christ coming into this world to be born in order that he might die was not so that two countries could make peace, but so that the maker could make peace with mankind. The creator could have peace with the created, so that you could have peace with God. No man is born with peace with God. Every man is born an enemy. And yet, Calvary, Bethlehem has guaranteed us that God's intent for peace has always been for you and for him, for me and for my God to have Peace. We often say, rest in peace. My friend, if you don't have peace in this life, you'll never have it. If you die without peace, forget about it. People say, you better make peace with God. My friend, none of us can do that. It's beyond our abilities, our strength, and our, anything that we could ever do. If any of this has stirred anything in your heart or your interest, I ask you to hear me out as to what the scriptures say here. That if peace on earth was never intended between warring nations, factions, armies, between, between groups and totalitarian regimes and, 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 and just mobs that were going to attack each other, peace was never meant for two political systems in the U.S. to come here. This was not the intent. God said that's all a, that's all a byproduct of sin and of the heart. But instead, peace between men and between God, between you and between the man who made you. And so peace, not for nations, but peace, that is necessary. If you die without peace with God, you will have missed 
the only and most significant thing that you were made to recognize in this life. Is it necessary? When I go through Columbia University sometimes through their library, on their library uh, edifice outside, they, they list all the great poets of a, a former, former dispensation, oh, back into the Roman times. And I always look up there to see all the, the poets that they list. And one of those great poets, his name was Horace. He was born about four years before the time of Christ. And he was considered to be one of the greatest Roman poets. And he existed during a time of peace, the Roman peace. And he wrote this, and I thought it was so fitting when it comes to necessary, something that's necessary. He said this, he talked to his pupils. And he would tell them, you write an ode, you write a poem, you write some type of ballad, you write some type of epistle or narrative that's going to, going to bring us through some type, of a, some type of a scene or scenario. He says, only introduce a God if it's absolutely necessary. That's what this great poet said. He said to all his pupils. I don't know what Longfellow told his pupils as a poet when he taught at Harvard University. But I know that this Roman poet, he said, only introduce a God if it's absolutely necessary. Tell me, are you going to achieve peace with God without him? Are you going to? Is it, is it just a matter of you stringing together the right words and the right actions in life, obeying the right laws, that somehow you on your own accord, is this necessary that Christ came to Bethlehem? Is it necessary? That God became a man and that he went to Calvary and laid down his life. Was it necessary for us to have peace with God without a shadow of a doubt? There was no other way. When you look at necessary, things that are absolutely, you know, God didn't open up a plan book and go, well, we got five ways to achieve peace. They can obey some rules that I'll give them. Or they can, they can probably just do their best. They can... They can sing their best. They can attend their churches. They can go through life and raise great families and, and keep the good morals and good principles and be fine, clean, living citizens. And they will get peace. No, God didn't go through a plan book. There was one option. One option when God considered peace with those who hated him without a cause, when those who were enemies. And that one plan was him sending his son and letting men do whatever they would to him in order that he would offer peace to his enemies. Mm -hmm. It was absolutely necessary. Introducing God into this story was not only necessary, but it was the only way I was ever going to know peace with the one who had made me. I was never going to desire it, seek it, or want it on my own. But instead, God took the initiative. How wonderful that when I look at this, this necessary that the Maker did this. When I think of how wonderful it is, of all the things that I could hope to have, when it comes to peace, when it comes to all this world that can't offer it, when I hear that on the song, uh, all the songs on the radio and the carols that talk about, oh, what, this year it's going to happen. We're finally going to see people give up what they want and instead take a sacrifice for peace. And I say, no, it hasn't happened in 6,000 years. It's not going to happen in 2023. But you know what will happen in 2023? There will be individuals who realize that without the death of Jesus Christ, they have no hope in this world of ever having peace with the one who made them. That will happen. Whether or not Zelensky and Putin ever come to terms with that peace, 
It's not that I don't care. I do. I really do. I long for that. But you know what? That's not God's main objective. God's main objective is just this. That the enemies who are seated in this building right now come to terms. That they would want peace with them. And so it's necessary. Not only that, but it's not natural. It's not natural. It's not something that that just comes out of me as though this is something that, that, that if man's left to himself, he's finally going to seek it out. But as a, as a society, you know, some people say, oh, where are you from? And I, I happen to be from a, a place where, you know, society hasn't come a long ways in the past 200 years, you know? And, and maybe here in Connecticut, you guys have. You, you've kept true to the Constitution as labeled on your license plates. And, and, and things of a nature up here are just maybe a little cleaner. And you say, yeah, we have progressed. And, and left to our own abilities, there's a natural progression that we will eventually reach the point where we can say, yes, we, we, through, through technology, through theology, through education, through just the right ideas and motives, naturally, we will come to peace. You know, it wasn't long after this civil war that Longfellow's son was in that they brought the cannons to West Point. And if you've ever visited West Point, it's quite a trip to go to. Because you know what they do at West Point? At West Point, they put the cannons of every war we've ever been in. And I love it. Maybe I shouldn't say that with such a multicultural group here tonight from different countries. But I, I love the display of all the cannons, especially the ones the British had. And they, they've taken the cannons of the enemies and they've, they've stacked them 20 deep, 30 deep sometimes. And they all have the insignia of the, the English monarchy on them. Just to say this, we won. We won. Right? They're trophies from battle. They do that for all the wars except for one. You go there and you see the cannons from the Civil War and they've taken those cannons and they've done this. They've taken them and they've taken the mouth of the cannons and they've placed them right into the earth. And at that memorial they said this, never let it happen again. Never, never let it happen again that we go to war with our own. Never, never let it happen again. And so all the other trophies, all the other cannons are placed in proud display except for the ones that mark that war that took place in 1861 to 1865, and they took those cans and put them into the ground. They said, never let it happen again. I ask you, maybe something you've never thought of. If that fateful day on April 3rd, 1833, when they crucified Christ, were instead today, how would you react? That day long ago, when they nailed my Lord upon the tree and left him dying there, if that happened today, and it happened here, you say, oh, I would be one of the ones who would object to it. I would say, no, no, not on my watch. Not, no, I, would, I would be one of those ones, David, who would, who would stand there and vehemently oppose the crucifixion of the creator of this world. I'm not here to argue with you, but the Bible says that would be anything but the case. That if the crucifixion happened today, Every one of us would take our place there in order to cast insults and mockery, to wave our fists at the one who was hanging on the center tree, and to do so because we hate him. I don't think there's an exception to that. If you've met an exception to that, please let me know. But you know what? There's nothing natural about wanting this peace. The, the cannons that they turn upside down, look at our country today. Never let it happen again. We're not far. 
are not far from it happening again. Never let it happen again. We've progressed, haven't we? We've progressed the whole ways. We've come a long ways in 140 years. No, my friend. No, my friend. We've, we've progressed nowhere. Humanity has not come a long ways. Humanity would still do the same thing to Jesus Christ today all over again. And so I ask you, it wasn't peace for nations. It was absolutely necessary. And you know what? This peace, there's nothing natural about it. Everything about it is supernatural. Everything about it is exceptional. That this peace, as the angel said, good news of great joy to all people, for unto you is born. This man who brought peace had to be a real man. Born. This day in the city of David, a savior. If you don't have sin, you don't need a savior. But there was a problem that he came for. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ. He was promised. This was not a, a last-minute decision, a, a reaction to a, an unforeseen problem, but something that had been predicted since page 3 of the Bible. Christ the Lord. Not only did it take a man, a man who was a Savior, who was promised, it took a man who was the God of heaven, who came into this world, to offer himself as a substitute for sinners to make peace. I think nothing natural about it, everything about it, has the, 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 the audacity of something that is supernatural, unbeknownst to us, that a man would lay down his life for his enemies. We name our streets after our veterans. I have yet to see a street named in my town or anywhere else that is named after someone who put a landslide bomb in a country that we were preserving. They don't do it. But the streets in heaven are going to be filled one day with people who willingly and gladly wanted to see the Savior crucified. And by some remarkable means of grace, God extended peace to them through his Son and his Son only. This peace is not for nations, it's for individuals. It's absolutely necessary. There's nothing natural about it. How did this peace take place? This peace took place because of a man who had a name and he took names. What did the angels say? I should call his name Jesus. And how often we miss this? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. There's the problem been the problem since day one. It's, it's been the problem since, since the beginning of time. It's the problem any time we look at difficulties in life and any time we try to cover them up. The problem that there are hospitals, the problem that there are prisons, the problem that there are refugees, the problem that there are people who are discarded. The reason that there's depression this time, the reason that there's fake joy over materialism, it all comes and emanates from this one great problem. Sin in the human heart. And as much as you or I would love to scrape away the sin from our hearts, we can't do it. And yet we have this possibility tonight, this biblical possibility, to have the sin removed from our souls because there was one man who did not have our problem, Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that this man came into the world to save sinners, and so, with the utmost respect for Mr. Longfellow, 
He says in stanza four, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. If God's not dead, I have no peace. If my God did not die for me, then my friend, I will continue on in this life, and I will know for sure that there is no possibility of peace or forgiveness. But instead, I introduce you to a God who does not demand that you make peace with him, but a God who came to this world and suffered, bled, and died, that you could have peace. And you could have a guarantee from the one who made you, from the one whom you wronged. God is not dead. No, God did die. And Colossians 1 and 20, the verse that we read this evening, tells me just that. That in him the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell. And through him, making peace by the blood of his cross. What wonderful words. What words that couldn't be duplicated or replicated if you tried to make it up. And here, Longfellow, he says, God is not dead nor doth he sleep. He says, the wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, good will to men. The problem with that, that maybe I've come to terms with day after day in my life, and maybe you have too, I don't know, is just this. That, that desire for the wrong to fail and the right prevail, I, I love that. I, I think that's just glorious. I wake up in the morning, and, and, and to be honest, whether I bow my knees in the morning or in the evening, I long for a day when righteousness will rule, when the wrong shall fail and the right shall prevail. But as much as I want that, I wonder if, if God came back tonight and he said in this hall in Brookfield, well, please, the right stand on the right side and the wrong stand on the left side. Who's going to take their place over here? And who's going to take their place over here? Because as soon as this sentiment echoes from our heart that the, the wrong failed and the right prevailed, then I actually just start with me and I say, I'm destined to fail. I'm destined to have an eternity without my Savior if this is the end. The angel said good news. And here's the good news. That Christ Jesus came into the world not for the right but for the wrong. That, that God sent his son into the world. And when you think of suffering, the suffering that Longfellow went through, and all the pain and, and anguish that, that he lived in that life, and, and sometimes we shake our fists at a God and we say, what do you know of suffering? And yet the Bible tells us that Christ once suffered for sins. The just one, or the righteous one, for the unrighteous. Why? Why would he do that? The Bible says, make, make no... Make no mistake about it, this is why he did it, that he might bring us to God. Guaranteed. Mm -hmm. From Scripture. Guaranteed from the authority that we hold to you tonight. And so, when Longfellow penned these words, when he heard the bells ring, and all of us, in one way or another, we hear the bells, whether it comes from our FM dial, whether it comes from Spotify, whether it comes from our car stereo on the 25th, we will hear the bells once again, of peace on earth. And I ask you, when you hear them, you ask yourself the question, do I have peace with God? Forget about the countries, forget about the political parties, forget about the dissension and the division, forget about all those things. And I ask you tonight to ask from your heart. No one's born with this, and no one can afford to die without it. And so I address you, and I plead with you tonight, with no incentive, because I, 
I barely know many people here. On behalf of the God of heaven, I ask you and I implore you, this is not a peace that you can afford to die without. And yet it's a peace that is made clear in this scripture when through his blood, that was a real man who died at Calvary, God offers you peace. In fact, the Bible makes it even simpler. In Ephesians, it says this, Jesus Christ is our peace. Here it is personified, offered to you this evening. You say, how do I claim something like this? How do I get it? The Bible simply says that you come and believe who you are and who he is. If you're not an enemy, you don't need peace. You really don't. We know that. That's simple. And if you're not a sinner, you don't need a savior. If you're not lost, you don't need to be found. But if you are, as the scriptures offer fairly clearly, on God's work, not on mine, that there is peace tonight through the blood of his cross. Longfellow must have been thrilled to know that there was something greater than peace through a God who is not dead, but peace through a God who died, was buried, and who rose again on the third day. It's not a memorial that we visit like we do the canons at West Point. But it's a real man who offers peace and guarantees it because he laid down his life for you. We trust that tonight you might know this peace and you might know forgiveness. We'll close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we give thanks once again for your Son and for our Savior. We're thankful, Lord, for the opportunity tonight to proclaim the love of Christ, which is greater far than pen or ink could ever tell. And we pray, Lord, tonight that we might once again appreciate the love, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ for all that he did. And he did it for those who were incredibly undeserving. And so as we go home tonight, and especially at this time of year, with all the things that are of little consequence, we pray, Lord, that you would once again, you would just put it right before our eyes and our hearts what this peace cost, and how wonderful that it's still offered to whosoever. We ask, Lord, all these things, once again, in your Son's name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There's one Christmas carol we haven't sung, and that'll be the one that we conclude uh, the meeting with tonight, and that's on page number one. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plains. And the mountains in reply, echoing their joyous strains. And then the verse there, maybe the only time this week that we do a verse in, in Latin, I presume. And uh, we'll sing the other two stanzas as well. The last one says, Come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. Come, adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, the new born king. We'll sing this entire Christmas carol tonight. Once again, we thank you for coming out and being with us. We really appreciate that. And if you have any questions or things or comments or other carols you want done next time, yeah, be free to come and let us know. So we'll sing this one here on page number one to end our meeting, Angels We Have Heard on High. Angels We 